How does the brain process memories? Why is AI a solution and a problem for our climate? What is leadership in 2025 and beyond? The TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions and the most complicated ideas of our time with the world's greatest thinkers. Listen now to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Katia Beecham, co-founder and CEO of Birchbox, and I'm a West Texas native. The biggest thing I want to tackle is that it is not worth it for many women to come back to work. When she comes back, suddenly there's a view that you couldn't possibly be as ambitious. That shouldn't be a trade-off. You should be in front of opportunities, and you should be working at a place that can be flexible enough to accommodate you. There's absolutely nothing that breaks down about your possibility as a human because you have a child. You become a superhuman, and everybody needs to celebrate and recognize that, and we, as companies and employers, need to make it worth it for women to come back. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Birchbox co-founder and CEO Katia Beecham came from a modest background in El Paso, Texas. Today, she's known for leading Birchbox to become a global business, which continues to expand worldwide. She now runs a profitable company with more than 2.5 million active customers. And she's also passionate about supporting aspiring female leaders and says that she feels a sense of responsibility to create an army of women in the workplace who are confident enough to ask for what they need. So Katya, when did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? The truth is I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I went to business school because before business school, I really didn't understand or know what entrepreneurship was. In my mind, you know, lawyers, doctors owned their own businesses or engineers and technologists. I'm from El Paso, Texas. I wasn't surrounded with that as a concept of a career. So I, you know, like a very well-behaved young lady, I went into finance and then decided I would go to business school, most likely get back into finance of some kind. And in business school, I was exposed to entrepreneurship and basically my whole world changed. So what did you learn from those entrepreneurs that you interacted with at school? You know, I will say that the first real moment that I thought about being an entrepreneur was in class. Not that necessarily they're all entrepreneurs in business school, but the professor teaching the entrepreneurship class, he just changed my whole perspective because what I felt I was missing in my career was, frankly, the opportunity to meet myself. I wanted to know what I was capable of and what I was made of. And I was, you know, 25, 26, 27. And I felt that I wasn't being pushed or asked to really give my entire capability in my work. I was progressing well and felt I had so much more to give. So when I was exposed to entrepreneurship in school, I realized you can't hide as an entrepreneur. This is going to be the opportunity to really know what I'm capable of. And frankly, all of the ups and downs that they presented, because they actually, I would call it, were discouraging of entrepreneurship in the sense that they really said from a reality perspective, almost all of these fail. I realized I was just leaning into that so much and thinking that is the life I want to live. I want to actually try so hard and know what's possible when I try that hard. You started Birchbox when you were at Harvard Business School. Did you have trouble getting guys or future investors to take you seriously because you were 
two young women at the time. You're still a young woman. (laughs) Thank you. I'd like to think so. So I will tell you two things. One is I didn't realize it at first. I was definitely not tuned in to the fact that being a woman was making things harder because, frankly, I had gone to Vassar undergrad where women were dominant. I had been successful in finance. I was at Harvard. There were plenty of dominant women there. And I wasn't in the mindset that there should be any reason why that would be a challenge given that I was starting a company geared towards a female consumer and had an insight that came from being that consumer, right, as a woman. So I didn't think this is going to make it inherently hard. What I did realize over time was the fact that absolutely we were being treated differently. And the way that it felt was no matter how no matter how well we were able to articulate the massive scale we had achieved on very little paid in capital with, you know, just a few years. And no matter how we tried to show our metrics, all of our KPIs and just how outstanding this business was, we felt that it was very hard for many male investors to hear it. I felt that when I was there, they heard that I was a woman who liked makeup. And I I didn't know how to say this. Well, first of all, I don't like makeup. Um, second of all, I just it was confounding. I couldn't believe that we were having such a serious conversation about a $500 billion industry that hadn't been disrupted since Sephora disrupted it 20 years ago. Opportune time, right? You know, nothing had really been challenged about this industry for decades. And I couldn't believe that they couldn't hear what this was. And they would just keep boiling it back to, well, my wife doesn't use makeup. Or, you know, I, you know, my daughter tried this and didn't like it. Or my daughter tried this and she loved it. And that those little things like swaying their view on this investment thesis, whereas we were saying, you know, We have reached our five-year revenue target in seven months. We have millions of subscribers before we even, you know, could have imagined we're outpacing the size of, like, major magazine circulation at this point. And, by the way, we're getting people to completely change their behavior and pay for something that was formerly free. So if you think about what Birchbox is from an e-commerce perspective, we are an e-commerce company that gets the customer to pay us to be acquired. I mean, that should have been drop the mic. Right. Also, we were growing phenomenally well. Also, we had incredible unit economics, but it was it was really hard to kind of break through and and to get people to hear what I think is so exciting about our company. How did you get some of those guys in the beginning to get it? So in the beginning, I'd say, you know, we found the right people. Again, I think it was before I really recognized that there was this challenge to being a woman pitching a female-oriented company. And we found investors, some of whom were a woman. So we found Teresa Gao from Excel, but now she has obviously her own fund. And she was at Excel at the time. She was a woman. We didn't even have to get to page five of like a 50-page deck with Teresa. Page like four, she was like, in? So in. I get this. This is the future. And then we met Finn Barnes from First Round Capital. And he had been involved with businesses that had women as like the target and customer, he spent a, just he spent a ton of time. I mean, I will give him so much credit for that. It's just really getting in our heads. What was this insight and understanding it and getting excited about it? Those two were early. There were our first two investors in, as well as a whole group of other angel investors like Kirsten Green and Gary Vaynerchuk, Michael Deering from Harrison Metal, all of these incredible people that they just took the time to learn more and they spent time with us. So it just was a matter, I think, of they weren't looking at it as these two girls who were excited about a makeup company. They recognized that we were serious business students that found an arbitrage opportunity where we noticed that there was just it was a ripe opportunity in beauty. 
that this was clearly a category that was lagging all of the other categories in terms of online penetration and somebody was going to figure this out and the recipe that we had tried while at business school because we did a small test it seemed really interesting because we had hundreds of women and then over a thousand people sign up for a wait list that were willing to pay for samples samples do you think it's gotten easier for female entrepreneurs in the years that you've been at it? I think it's an interesting question because there there are more female entrepreneurs today, and but there are more people trying to pitch companies. And yes, there's more. There are more seed stage and early stage funds, some of which target or have you know the idea that they want to focus on female led companies. But there is just a lot more noise. And for as much as there is more female entrepreneurs for sure today, and more people trying to pitch, there have also been more I think failures, and more people can point to that too because obviously the economy goes up and down and men and women have success and failures, but I don't think there's this new huge momentum, unfortunately, still. You've used some keywords like seed and different rounds of financing. Wondering for our listeners who didn't go to Harvard Business School who need, it seems like they need to know the lingo if you're going to advance in this field. First of all, is that right? And then if so, how do you learn the lingo? Look, I think that, I mean, the, you, need to, you need to arm yourself with enough information about fundraising in order to help yourself because the most important decision you're going to make as an entrepreneur is how to fund your company. And I think if you're if you think it's the strategy you're wrong, I mean the financing of it is the critical aspect and it continues to be the most critical thing that you do as a CEO of a company as the company scales. So understanding what understanding those markets, understanding the way that people think about measuring the success of e-commerce companies, who they're going to put in your comp set, those are really critical things. Doing your research before you meet with an investor to understand who's in their portfolio today and what are the implications of the type of businesses they spend time with is going to be well worth your time because it is very likely that a lot of people will meet with you and you have you know, an idea, and especially if you have some traction through a test. But it is always, I would say, very challenging when you're going to be the first of its kind. So for example, if you meet with a fund that really focuses on software, that's their main focus, but they say they want to be in e-commerce, it's just going to be a, a more of an uphill battle because they don't have comps to immediately measure you on and they don't understand quite like just off the back of their, you know, in the back of their hand, like how to think about your business. So it's going to be more work and it's less likely. So I think spending the time researching who you're going to pitch is going to do you well. You're going to learn some of the lingo through that. I don't think you have to go to Harvard Business School at all, but I do think you have to put a lot of upfront time into the financing of the company. And it's not just the idea or the strategy or the launch. I mean, financing is a huge piece and will continue to be. How can women know if they're entrepreneurs or not? That's such a great question. So I think that one of the key most important aspects of being an entrepreneur, being somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur, is being somebody who is attracted to being extremely uncomfortable. So you have to be very interested in the fact that you're never going to feel settled and hopefully see that as you know, meaning that you're, you're really learning, you're constantly developing, you're stretching all the time. That's the implications of always feeling uncomfortable. But I think if you're somebody that's okay with uncertainty, if you're somebody that is constantly feeling like, you know, you're punching above your weight, you're stretching, you want to feel that. And every time you get to that next level, you're stretching again. I think it's a really good sign that you're not, that that, that uncertainty, that that 
that kind of uncomfortableness doesn't get you down, that it kind of feeds you instead of makes you feel like wary or cautious. So even when your company's hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, you still can feel uncomfortable. You never. I mean, I think I actually think this is my biggest epiphany as a person, as somebody in my career, is that it's actually the point to never feel comfortable because it means that you are always pushing and striving and learning because that is how you stay relevant as a leader. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where your company's scaling, where your company's growing really quickly, then you your job is changing materially every few months. Every six months is the longest you feel like you're in a job, right? It's changing so much. So by the time you get kind of good at your job, it's on to the next job. <laughs> you know, it's different again, and you have to have new skills again. So you that becomes just kind of this cycle, this treadmill that you're on, and you have to think that that is incredible. I have been talking to the, my team a lot about this, but I realize that a lot of us think that the way of, you know, approaching a challenge or thinking about our careers is that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You like work really hard, there's a tunnel, and then there's like a light at the end. And I realize that I actually think that the game of it and the point of it is to be really good and happy in the tunnel because because there's just always the new challenge. You know, there's always a new thing to fight for and you have to be able to find happiness and joy in the tunnel, in the journey, in the darkness, and not just live for the light because there is light. And I don't want to say that there's not, but as most entrepreneurs will tell you, that light always feels so short-lived because you always know there's so much more you want to do. There's so much more. Like you're, you always feel like you're just getting started and it's a great feeling, but it means that you're never really basking in the light. You're always moving forward. Isn't that exhausting, you know, always <laughs> fighting, so to speak. That's what it comes down to. You asked, you know, how do you know? And I think if you, if that doesn't exhaust you, if that invigorates you, if that makes you feel alive and it makes you feel like that's the life you want to live, that's the, that's the feeling I had when I was learning about entrepreneurship. I think they were trying to tell me in school, this is exhausting. Most people fail. And I was like, this sounds amazing because I want, I just want to put my whole self out there and I want to grow and I want to develop and I want to do as much as I can know for myself for the world I want to leave a mark you know that motivated me instead of making me feel like this is going to be exhausting but it's a lot of work and I always say that if anybody knew what it was I don't think you would choose it how does the brain process memories why is AI a solution and a problem for our climate what is leadership in 2025 and beyond the TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions and the most complicated ideas of our time with the world's greatest thinkers. Listen now to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The Future of Everything from The Wall Street Journal. All new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and NPR One. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Some women have told me they want to stay, they want to start their own business, but they're afraid to fail. And if they put themselves out there, they're afraid that they're, they're going to fail publicly. How can they get over that fear of failure? I mean, success is built on the backs of millions of failures, millions of failures. People will look out and see something that I did, or I'll look at something somebody else did and see, think of it as successful. And behind the scenes, I mean, you are just failing all 
the time. You're making a ton of mistakes in order to get to that next, you know, realization or to have a breakthrough. I can't, I can't even begin to tell you, but in the early days of Birchbox, the amount of people that told us no, far, far, you know, outnumbered the amount of people that were like, that's such a great idea. Most people told us absolutely no customers would ever pay for samples. That's never been done. And why would they? Samples are free in their mind. Plenty of people that were, we went to for fundraising told us to completely change the business model, charge brands, don't charge customers. Brands told us on many occasions that they would never work with us, like never, ever, ever. And we work with all of them that said that now. So I think, you know, it helped, it helps make you, it just helps make you so smart because no one, when you're an entrepreneur, no one's doing you any favors, right? Your investors are looking to make a return. Your partners are looking to make a return and customers are looking to make a return. Everybody is, you know, supporting you when you are giving them value. And in order to learn how to give someone value, you have to hear all of their skepticism. You have to hear the things that make them afraid of you, make them think that you are impossible, because that helps you sharpen your focus on what you need to build. And it it just fuels it. How do you develop that resilience, though, when all these people who are supposedly experts are telling you no? I, you know, I think that once you realize there's nothing to be afraid of, what's the worst thing that can happen if you try to start a company? The worst thing that can happen, I'm telling everybody listening, is that you are going to be so much more employable, right? You are going to develop skills that you could never have developed. It is so hard. It is so hard that anybody that you work for, if you work for someone again, you are going to be a much better asset resource team member, employee. You are going to be so much better. So the worst thing that happens is you fail and you're going to advance more in your career because you're going to know yourself better. You're going to know how to lead with your strengths, how to surround yourself with people who can help bolster your areas of development. You're going to learn how to ask for what you need. It's it's an incredible experience even if and when it most often is not something that is cataclysmically successful. You've said that so much of success is staying in the game and so many people tap out. Did you ever think of tapping out when things got difficult? in your business. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. I think there have definitely been moments when I've thought about tapping out, but never sat in that or ruminated in that feeling. I've thought about it just to try to, I think for all of us, when we're making these kinds of decisions and we're deciding we're going to have a career job that is about a fight, you have to visit the other side of like, what would it be like to just kind of chill and say, does that sound better? And that, you know, I'm able to kind of access that thought and realize that I'm very motivated by the fight. And I feel that I'm so lucky to be in this fight. I'm so lucky. I have, it's such a privilege to get to try to do this. It's incredible to build a team of people who are so talented and bring their talents to you and develop you and grow you. It's incredible to leave a mark on, you know, the world by having the alumni that pass through the company and and think of their potential differently and think of the relationship they have with their employer differently. Um, And then, of course, it is just so humbling to build a consumer business and to have millions of people across the world interact and experience your product. In 2006, the business went under some pressure. Some people were saying Birchbox is just a fad. How did you not let that stress get to you? Because then we know in 2017, this year, you became profitable. I mean, the stress, it definitely was there. It, It isn't to say that I'm so resilient that I didn't feel the pressure, but I've never wavered from the fact that this is an incredible business and that anybody who thinks that it's a fad doesn't understand. How do you figure out the timing when to start a business? Birchbox had the advantage 
advantage of first mover advantage, as they say. And if you're thinking about starting your own <clears throat> company, how do you know when when is a good time? I think you just have to be out there and test. I mean, there's there have to be countless examples that you know of of amazing companies that didn't work the first time and then worked the second time, but with a very similar concept, right? Um, when the market was ready. You're married with three young children. Yeah. You said the work-life balance idea is a myth. I heard that in a past interview. What, what do you mean by that? I think that there's this vision when you say work-life balance that there's like a seesaw and work is on one side and life is on the other and then it's like balanced every day. And it's just impossible. It's impossible to live your life on this notion of like balancing in a day, in a week, in a month. You know, you have to be nice to yourself. There are going to be times and periods where you have to be more focused on an aspect of your life in order for it to get to where it needs to be. I think you just can't judge yourself on a day-to-day basis of like, did I give it 50-50, which is like what balance implies. Instead, being kind to yourself, I think, is a huge part of it. And frankly, I think that the requirement of this 50-50 split really is different when you love what you do and when it feels like it's who you are and it is your life. It doesn't any longer feel like you have to say, well, 50% of the time I'm going to be working and 50% of the time I'm going to be living. It's my whole life should be valuable to me. My whole life should be worth it. It should be worth spending the time at this place and it's a part of who I am and what shapes me. And and I just try to think about it a lot differently. But frankly, that is one of my biggest, you know, hopes and, and dreams for people is that more people get an experience at work that is worthy of not having to think about this split, right? That's worth it. That's worth it for them to invest themselves in because it is rewarding and is giving back to who they are and they feel that it is making them more of what they want to be and who they want to be, not sucking the life out of them that they then have to go replenish on their life days. What do you mean be nice to yourself? I think that we are, we tend to be, you know, really the our worst critic. Everyone will say that, right? And I think we give our, start to have these inner monologues around, you know, am I doing enough? Am I being enough? Am I being there enough for my team? Am I an inspirational or leader that is helping people understand where we're going? Am I there enough for my family? Do they know that they're such a huge priority to me? And you just start to feel like the answer is no on so many things because you know you have so much to give. And in reality, I think you need to, pull up and look at the fact that people want to work here. They want to be a part of this. They want to fight the good fight. And that is an indication that something here is happening, right? That your family is so happy and, you know, they're not spending their days doing anything other than being just joyful little humans with us adults floating around them. I mean, something has to be right there instead of instead of just kind of sitting and thinking like, I could give more, I could give more, I could give more, just recognizing that you are giving so much and that you're finding the right way way of calibrating what makes you maximize what you have to give. And for me personally, having something that I love to do outside of my home is a huge part of me feeling whole and feeling like somebody that can bring energy home and vice versa. Do you think there's a different standard for working moms? Oh, yes. Unfortunately, yes. I do think that there is a big difference for working moms. I think that there's definitely a view that it changes us. It's probably my biggest frustration and the biggest thing I want to tackle is moving the conversation that we're having about women and motherhood and working from maternity leave to what happens after. Because frankly, I think the biggest challenge is that it is not worth it for many women to come back to work. It's just not worth it. And and you can define what does it mean to be worth it. But I'm not just talking about paycheck. I think before a woman makes a big decision to decide to have a family, 
family. She gets treated about one way about her career and her potential. And then when she comes back, it's often the case where suddenly there's a view that you couldn't possibly be as ambitious, right? You couldn't possibly still be striving for the absolute top of your game. Suddenly you're just discounted, kind of protected, treated as though, you know, you probably want more flexibility instead of opportunities. And frankly, that shouldn't be a trade-off. You should be in front of opportunities and you should be working at a place that can be flexible enough to accommodate you. There's absolutely nothing that breaks down about your possibility as a human because you have a child. You become a superhuman and everybody needs to celebrate and recognize that. And we as companies and employers need to make it worth it for women to come back. Do people treat you differently now that you have fame and fortune? I don't think I have either of those things. I'm a very lucky person because I married a man that I met when I was 10 years old. So I'm surrounded by my core. I'm surrounded by people who've known me since I was me, who say they're absolutely not surprised by any of this. Since I was insistent that I would be president of the United States, this is still a ways away, but who just make me feel so grounded and and so, I guess, close to who I am. So that's where I spend most of my time is still like with my people. You know a lot of financial advisors like to pitch business owners because they're hoping for that liquidity event one day. Do you get a lot of pitches from advisors saying like, come work with me? Come work. Um, I get a fair amount. I often am just still so naive about that that I don't know what I'm getting pitched and I don't have time to open a lot of emails that aren't emails I have to open. What do you do differently now that you've come into wealth? I'd say, I mean, I don't know if I feel I've come into it. I think, you know, the biggest thing that I try to think about is is giving back my time and indefinitely supporting others. And I've had the amazing fortune of working with some talented people at Birchbox who've decided to go on and start their own companies. And being a part of that as an early stage investor is something that means a lot to me. I get really excited and passionate about too, with like being there and helping and helping them kind of work through their early stage ideas. I've read that some reports were saying you might sell Birchbox. Some reports were saying Walmart or some other company next year. Wondering, can you give us any insight on that? Not, not now. Um, my always dream for the company was build a standalone business. And that is the focus that we still have is how do we, you know, basically build this multi-billion dollar business because we really believe that we are the only beauty company that is focusing on a woman who has just a casual average relationship with beauty and is not obsessed. And that so many women have because, you know, they are not obsessed with beauty or because they don't have time have just had a really not great relationship with buying and using and discovering. And we think it's a massive idea, and we're focused on us being the ones that, that accomplish it, that tackle it. Do you sell it one day? I, I mean, I all I care about is the inevitability. So I have to say yes, I would if it was really helping us reach the potential. But it's definitely not why I started it, and it's certainly not the thing that motivates me. If you had to give one piece of advice to a woman who's thinking about starting her own business, what would that be? I would say start. I think that most people can basically spend a lot of their time in stealth mode, in Excels, in PowerPoints, and they don't get a beta out there, a test. So testing your idea like as in as much of a form as you can is something that I really encourage because it's not, it shouldn't feel precious and it certainly shouldn't feel that it's not impressionable. You need people to get their hands on it, you know, to leave their mark on it so that then you can keep iterating and keep evolving the idea so the earlier you can get a test out, I think the more you'll feel motivated to do it. What's your favorite beauty product? Mm, dry shampoo. Easy. Why does anybody wash their hair every day? That takes so long. <laughs> Time now for your secrets. I'm Katia Beecham, co-founder and CEO of Birchbox, and my money secret is maximizing those credit card points. 
Be sure to listen back for future episodes featuring billionaire philanthropist Suki Novogratz, as well as other women leaders sharing the secrets to their success. Check out more at Apple Podcasts, WSJ.com slash podcast, or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. How does the brain process memories? Why is AI a solution and a problem for our climate? What is leadership in 2025 and beyond? The TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions and the most complicated ideas of our time with the world's greatest thinkers. Listen now to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.